Excellent. Oh. Very nice, thank you. Morning, everybody. Happy Easter. Christos Anesti, Christ is risen. It's great, isn't it? Oh, well, it's good to be together this morning. Easter Sunday is the high point in the Christian calendar. On Friday, if you were here, we talked about the crucifixion, Jesus going to the cross on our behalf, succumbing to death, taking on our sins, paying the price of those sins with his life, removing our sins from us. A Roman soldier pierces his side, blood and water flowed out, proving that his life had ceased, and then he lay in the tomb. Silence. Three days. Silence. Nothing. The hope of the nations, the promised Messiah, the saviour of Israel, stilled by death. His final words as he breathed his last, it is finished. All of history hung on that moment. It is finished. Three days he lay in the tomb, the one who said that he was God, the one described as the radiance of God's glory, the radiance of God's glory, lying in dirty, blood-soaked funeral rags in a tomb with a stone rolled over the front. This morning, we celebrate what happened next. Easter Sunday, we've just sung the song, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. Hallelujah. This is good news, isn't it? Why is it good news? We sung that as well. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Why? For I am his. He is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Christos Anesti. Christ is risen. For the past few weeks, as we've uh, led up to this morning, we've been working through a series called Rescued in uh, the book of Exodus. And we've been specifically charting the account of the Israelites as they are led out of Egypt, where they have been under Pharaoh's rule for, this is a few thousand years before the crucifixion. And this morning, we're going to finish that series, and we're also going to join the dots as we look at the Exodus story and how its shape and theme runs through all of Scripture and all of history, leading us up to what we celebrate today, Christ-beating death, defeating all the forces of evil, disarming Satan, for all of history. Let's watch a short clip of a film. I'm just going to issue a public service announcement as we do this. This is a clip from Lord of the Rings. It's rated 12A. If you're slightly squeamish, if you don't like the look of skulls, this is a moment to turn away or to turn your child's head away. But um, we've been watching a film clip uh, every week for the last few weeks just to illustrate the point we're going to make. So this is this morning's one. Let's watch together. It was made. 
fulfill your oath. None but the King of Gondor may command me. That line was broken. It has been remade. Happy Easter. This obviously, as I said, a clip from uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and this particular episode is called The Return of the King. And as we just saw, Aragorn, who will eventually emerge through, well, essentially 11 hours of cinema, <laughs> uh, to become king and rule over Middle-earth. In this scene, he reveals his true kingship to the King of the Dead. And just as we saw, the dead bow to nobody except the rightful king. And as Aragorn reveals himself as the rightful king, death submits to him. And as we look at our passage in Exodus today, we're going to see something similar, how we are an Exodus people, how the Exodus story leads us right up to Easter, the story that culminates with a king to whom death must bow, and how we can draw on this in order to live as Exodus people ourselves. Now, We've been looking at a very particular slice of the Exodus story, uh, the crossing of the Red Sea, which we'll read again in just a moment. But let's just recap what's happened so far in the story to lead us to this place where the Israelites find themselves stuck. They have the Red Sea in front of them. They have the armies of Pharaoh bearing down on them. It is an awful rock and hard place situation. They're facing certain death one way or another. It's either death by drowning in the sea or death by the sword of the Egyptians, who are at the time the mightiest and deadliest army on the planet. Now, the Exodus story itself, in one sense, starts a long time earlier. Um, as you probably know the story, Moses, who has uh, previously fled Egypt for killing someone, is out in the mountains, and he encounters God in a burning bush. And God says to him, essentially, Moses, my people, who I love and desire to be with, have been in brutal slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh for 400 years, so that Pharaoh can build his cities and raise his statues. But I've heard their cry, and it's time to set this injustice straight. So I want you, Moses, to march up to Pharaoh. I want you to march right up to his throne, and I want you to say, set my people free so that they might worship me. So Moses goes to Pharaoh. You know how the story goes. Moses says, let my people go. Moses says, uh, Pharaoh says no. And this repeats 10 times. Each time Pharaoh says no, God sends a plague or a judgment on Egypt. In the first one, he turns the Nile to blood. The Nile is the source of life in Egypt. And then we see infestations of frogs, gnats, locusts, boils, pestilence of livestock, thunderstorms of hail and fire. The sky turns black for three days. And then finally, we get to the worst of them all. In his stubbornness, having refused to let God's people go nine times, God says that tonight, Pharaoh, unless you change your heart and let my people go in order to worship me in the wilderness where I want to meet with them, I will strike down the firstborn son of every Egyptian family. Pharaoh stands firm. He looks Moses square in the eyes and he says, I will not let your people go. And so here's where the Exodus story picks up pace, really, because what we'll see next is what we see throughout Scripture and throughout history as God crushes his rivals, draws his people out of slavery, 
saves them from death through the blood of a lamb, leads them out, makes a way for them, gives them a future and a place in which they can be in relationship with him. Tonight, Pharaoh, unless you let my people go, I will take the firstborn of the land. So that night, as death gears up to sweep over the land, God says to Moses to tell his people that each family is to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, no broken bones, no deformities, to slaughter it, to daub some of the blood of the lamb over the doorposts, and then to feast on the rest of the lamb. They are to relax the night that death is coming, to eat a feast, a Passover meal. That night, as the angel of death sweeps over Egypt, God will look on the blood that marks the dwelling of his people. And instead of taking the firstborn of their families, he will pass over them. Hence, we get the Passover. That night, Pharaoh's asleep. The angel of death comes and takes the firstborn of every Egyptian family, just as God said he would. It says that crying was heard throughout the land. Sons were always meant to represent your legacy, your future. Pharaoh's son would have himself one day become Pharaoh. In a sense, your son was your immortality, the way in which you would go on after death. God takes them all in a flash. Now, Pharaoh, at this point, as you can imagine, loses the plot. Get out, he screams. Moses, get out. Don't ever let me see your face again. And so they leave. 600,000 men with their wives and families and animals The Bible says that others went with them as well, possibly some Egyptians. It's thought there's about two and a half million people who leave Egypt that night. And it's important to log that it was others who went with them as well, Egyptians. And they make their way into the desert and towards a place which God has prepared for them, which is poetically described in Scripture as a land overflowing with milk and honey, a place of abundance and peace where they can worship God and be with him, as was always the plan from the creation of the earth. And so they leave. And here we find ourselves a little way into the journey at the shores of the Red Sea. Now, at around the same time as this happened, Pharaoh comes to his senses and consumed with rage, realizing that he's lost everything, he commands his army to give chase and to capture every last Israelite in order to bring them back into slavery. And so here's where we find ourselves. Israel have just hit the Red Sea. Pharaoh is chasing them down, and they are stuck. Let me read to you a few excerpts from the story in Exodus 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, "'Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die?' What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? 
Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their left and on their right. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army, and he threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Two types of people go into the water. Only one type come out. God draws his people out. He makes a way for them to escape death through the blood of a lamb. And then he leads them through the water into a place where they can be with him. He removes their enemies. In that sense, the Exodus story is the Easter story. And it echoes throughout all of scripture and all of our lives and all of history. A king who rules over death, saves his people from slavery who removes our enemies, who offers us a peaceful place in which to live with him and worship him and draw from his goodness. The Exodus story is our story because it's God's story. Starting in Genesis and concluding in Revelation, the story of God and his people is Exodus-shaped. And that, that is really good news for us this morning because we can trust the Exodus story, because we can trust the king who orchestrated it and presides over it. It's everywhere in Scripture. Let's consider. At the start, God created the earth, the seas, the sky, the heavens, everything in them. And then he made, as the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, Adam and Eve. And Eden, the epicenter of it all, was the place where God was going to dwell with his people. He gave them names. He gave them duties. They were to steward and to rule over his creation. They were, in a sense, given priestly responsibility over the place that was intended as their place of relationship with God. Why did God do that? This is possibly the single most important thing to get on board this morning, because without it, you won't fully ever understand what the Bible is about and why things happen the way they do and how Easter brings it all together. God's plan has always been to call out and to have a people for himself, a people that he can love 
They can share in the love that he shares with his son and to draw us into relationship with him now and into eternity. That's what the whole story is about. It's how history reaches its climax. It's what Exodus is about. It's what Easter is about. It's what the Garden of Eden is about. It's what heaven is about. It's why God is primarily called Father. It's not just because he created us. Anyone who's had a bad experience of fatherhood will know that it takes more than the creation process to be called father. You need to be a father. Bring to life, raise up, protect, nurture, bring to maturity, equip and instruct for healthy living, love, and if necessary, lay down your life. Fathers, that's your job description. That's my job description. And I know that because it's what the father does. It's why he expresses joy and disappointment and exercises discipline and protection over Israel. It's why he delivers them from slavery. It's why he makes them a home. It's why he tells them where he is and how to be in relationship with him. It's why when Israel were just babies in nappies as they were here, he tells them how to stay safe, how to stay close, how to avoid death, how to live well, and how to bring others into that relationship. It's why he himself looks down on our plight and says to us, because I love you and because you've gone astray, in spite of the fact that you've walked away from me, because I love you, your plight will become my plight. Your darkness will become my darkness. Your death will become my death so that you can find your way back to me. God has always had a plan to call out and have a people for himself. He draws us out to draw us in. The word church, what we are, is derived from a Greek word, ecclesia. Ecclesia means called out. We are the called out ones. Church, if you've said yes to Jesus, then you are part of this people of God, the church, ecclesia. The called out ones. He's looked down on creation and called you out. He draws us out to draw us in. So God creates mankind. He gives them purpose. He meets with them. He communes with them. He gives them fruit from the tree of life. He literally clothes them and sustains them with immortality. He fathers them. He says to them that far above any animal of the wild, he has created them, us, in his image, with spirit and a deep desire for a relationship with God. That's what we're created for. And he says that all of this is good. Multiply, fill up the garden with others like you, others created in my image who can enjoy love and relationship with God like you do. Fill up the garden of our meeting. In fact, fill up the whole earth with more image bearers so that we might live in a mutually beneficial, loving, eternal relationship. And Adam, you will father over this community. Eve, this is important, you will bear the seed of humanity. Adam, protect her, guard her. She carries the seed from which all of my people will emerge. And then you know the story, one day a deceiver comes along. Genesis depicts the deceiver as a serpent, and it challenges God by deceiving Eve. It attacks 
the carrier of the seed, and it makes her disobey God and to lead Adam astray as well. And then the whole system breaks down. Suddenly, mankind has turned away from God and from its purpose as image bearers and priests and stewards of creation and of God's children. And God, who is pure and holy and righteous, removes Adam and Eve from his direct presence. Since what has purity and holiness got to do with rebellion and stain? They can't coexist. There can be no darkness in God. And as he does so, and this is so crucial, he speaks out what is regarded as the first gospel and gives shape to how the rest of salvation history will work out. Adam, you will now toil hard to subdue creation, as was always the plan, but now the ground will fight back against you with thorns and thistles. And instead of living on forever, when your allotted days are up, you will return to the dust from whence you came. Eve, you will give birth to children, as was always the plan, but it will not be a pleasurable experience. It will be painful. And you will desire to rule over your husband, just like you did when you deceived him, but he will always rule over you. Serpent, cursed are you above all the animals. Now listen to this for the outline of the gospel. There will be war between you and the woman, between you and her seed, her offspring. You will strike at the heel of her offspring, but he will crush your head. Sound familiar? This uh, account in Genesis 3 is often, it's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Even at the point of mankind's darkest hour, we see the first glimmer of the gospel. Satan will strike at the seed, Jesus, but Jesus will crush the serpent. As soon as mankind fell out of relationship with God, at that very moment, he put in place the plan that would span all of history to redeem his children, to get his family back, to rescue us out of slavery, the slavery that we placed ourselves under, to redeem us with the blood of a Passover lamb, to lead us out, to call us out, ecclesia, into a place where we can be free to be in relationship with him again and to worship him. Very soon after the garden, humanity continues its propensity from turning away from God. And if you turn away from that which is good and holy and light, where else is there to go but darkness and destruction and death? And very soon we've got Noah's Ark and the flood that wipes out all of humanity. Except a seed will remain. Noah, his wife, his children. God will preserve a seed from which people will emerge who he will love and rescue. Now, we've got children's uh, Bible artists to thank for that. Um, that's a lovely picture, but honestly, it would have been nothing like that. It was horror as God's judgment went on display. And again, we see the waters of destruction, of chaos, and a vessel in which God will bring his people safely. Step into this pitch-covered ark, Noah, an ark very much like uh, a smaller version of which will later save Moses. And just as Israel and Egypt enter into the sea and only one emerges safe on the other side, we see Noah's family and all of humanity enter into the water and only one again emerges safely as they enter the place of God's safety. And from this family, God will create a new nation in the very midst of the old, the seed is protected. 
Sometime later, humanity's up to it again, and man is caught by the heel again, and sin becomes the dominant refrain. This part of the story ends at Babel, where mankind is now trying to outperform God by building a skyscraper so that they can be equal to him in stature. And the story ends when God destroys the tower and scatters humanity across the earth, and we're just left wondering what his plan for humanity is now. But later on, the story focuses back down again onto one man, a man named Abram, whose name means exalted father, whose family head west from where they live in Mesopotamia. And there seems nothing particularly special about this family, except it is through this family and this man, Abram, that God is sovereignly working out his plan to rescue us. Now think about that. Look around this morning. We're a we're a fairly good-looking bunch. But it seems unlikely... <laughs> Thanks for the, uh, <laughs> the affirmation, Carlos. <laughs> but it seems unlikely that by human standards, we could change the outcome of history. But God sees things differently. It's through people like us that God works throughout history. It's through Abram's small, dysfunctional, tight-knit family. And the seed therein that God brings out of people, numbering like the stars in the sky who will be God's chosen, living in a blessed earth bruised by sin, to make known the God of rescue to all people. Abram, the exalted father, becomes Abraham, the father of a multitude. God is working through his people to redeem all humanity. Let that stir you this morning as you consider what God is doing through the church, the called out people of God, ordinary people like you and me, like Abram. And then we find ourselves sometime later in Egypt again, where now Pharaoh has noticed how numerous the Israelites are becoming in the land. And so he orders that every firstborn son of the Israelites be killed. Now all of the women of Israel must give up their sons. Again, Satan strikes at the woman, strikes at the seed, except the seed will later become the savior who will come from this people, from Moses' Israel. And so Moses whose Hebrew name Moshe, ironically means drawn out, is placed in a little pitch-covered ark and sent downstream where he will be rescued and restored. And then Pharaoh, the snake-like king, again tries to attack the seed, to snap at the hill as he gives chase to where God's people are huddling terrified at the Red Sea. But the snake-crushing God emerges as he leads his people out of slavery and through the waters, and removes the serpent and all of his cohorts. And then we enter into a period in Israel's history in which judges and kings and priests and prophets are raised up, and God repeatedly emerges victorious over Israel's enemy, and he repeatedly leads them out of slavery, but a pattern emerges, emerges which is true to the human condition even today. God's people get themselves into trouble by rebelling against God's laws. They make bad plans. They enter bad relationships. They carve out gods of wood and stone, and they call these little idols father. And in spite of that, the God of outrageous love rescues his people again and again. By the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, the story of God's people seems to just be balanced on a knife edge. They have so often failed to honor God and live in obedience and with faith and rebelled against him. Satan's grip seems to have more effect on them than the promises God has made with them. And yet God has promised them. 
And God is working through history and events in order to protect the seed, to protect his people. He's called out ones, his family, to rescue the slaves of sin. Hope is stirring. There's another Old Testament story which highlights this relationship. Sinful, rebellious man gripped at the heel by the snake and the promise-making eternal father who will have his people. On this occasion, the Israelites go into battle against their neighbors, the Philistines. And out of sheer cockiness, really, with no real deference to God, they say that we'll go to war and we'll win. And that's because we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant with us. The Ark of the Covenant was the wooden chest that stored the Ten Commandments and the place where God used to come down to meet with his people. And we'll place the Ark on the battlefield and God will show up and we'll win. Except that you can't win God's favor through mere ritual or religion. In fact, he owes us nothing but requires heartfelt relationship with him. And so this kind of laissez-faire attitude with God is dangerous. And so God lets the Israelites be overrun by the Philistines and they capture the Ark of the Covenant, Israel's most holy possession, and they parade it through the streets of their capital, Ashdod. Look, we've captured Israel's God. It's utterly crushing. It's utterly humiliating for God's people. Sometime later, God will be captured again in the person of Jesus. He will be seized and paraded in front of foreigners and their gods. He will be ridiculed and insulted and beaten and humiliated. And at the point of his greatest weakness, God will stretch out his arms on the cross, bleed for us as our Passover lamb, and save all of humanity. Hope is stirring. So far, all of our rescues in the story are incomplete. Each time we were rescued, we were still gripped by the heel. But now, in Jesus Christ, the proto-evangelium finds its fulfillment at the cross. This time, God will emerge not in spite of the shame of his capture, but through it. The saviour will become just that. As the snake snaps at the heel and Jesus crushes his head, at the cross, the power of sin and death are smashed and the way to God is flung wide open for all who will say yes to him, even this morning. This morning, this Easter morning, we celebrate the empty tomb as our Savior led the way through the grave, is torn up the dividing wall between God and man. He's rescued us from the slavery of our sin and its effects in our lives. And he's restored the relationship between God and his children the church. Come, let us adore him. Israel, as I said earlier, left Egypt with a a mixed multitude. Egyptians and foreigners went with them as they entered the desert. The promises to Israel has, they've burst out now from within Israel, and it's now open to all flesh. He is drawn in a mixed multitude out of slavery and into the church. The exodus has gone global. He draws us out to draw us in. We are an exodus people. The promise to Eve has come true. The serpent no longer has authority to hold onto the heel of man. The promise to Abraham is reaching its fulfillment. Every nation on earth will now be blessed because of the son of Abraham. The threads of all these little exoduses are intertwining into the great exodus through the rescue out of slavery that Jesus has achieved for us. 
Andrew Wilson outlines this, draws these parallels. He said, Jesus is the provider of wine for God's people so that they can celebrate with him, behold him, and eat and drink the meal of Passover. He is the bringer of a new birth through the waters of baptism and by the Spirit. He is the fountain of water in the desert. He provides the bread of heaven and reveals his sovereignty over the waters as he walks on them. He is the light that leads Israel, the truth that leads them from slavery, and the I am of the burning bush. He turns Pharaoh's plagues on their head. Where the Nile was blood red, he provides pure water to the thirsty. He heals those plagued. He provides light where there is darkness. He brings life to the dead. Ultimately, is his sacrifice and has his blood shed for God's people as the Passover lamb. He is the true meeting place of God in whom we see what God really looks like. The true mediator who prays that his people would be united in truth and holiness. The true lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So what do we, what do, we do with all of this? Well, the, the plagues of God were never a battle against just Pharaoh. They were a battle and a crushing victory against all the gods of Egypt. Listen again to the plagues. Blood in the water, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, the death of a firstborn son. The Egyptians had a god for each of these things. Harpy, god of the Nile. Heket, the god with a frog's head. Kepri, the god who makes the sunrise. Hathor, the goddess who protects livestock. Isis, the god of medicine. Where was she when the boils erupted? Newt, god of the sky. Couldn't hold back the hail. Neither could Seth, the god of the storms. God overcame them all. But who was the greatest Egyptian god of them all? It was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was regarded as the greatest god in the Egyptian pantheon of the gods. And God removed his offspring in one fateful night and took his lives like that in the waters over which he presided in a flash. Gateway, this world offers up many little gods, sex, money, power. They all offer much protection and richness. But just as quickly as they tempt the sensations, just as quickly as they come snake life into our lives, they strike at the hill and they enslave. One day, our God of the Exodus, Jesus, will return and remove them in the flash of an eye and the blast of a trumpet. He has set us free this morning from Pharaoh and all of his gods. And why? Think about what Moses said to Pharaoh. Let my people go in order that they may worship God. We are set free from Pharaoh's gods and freed from the slavery of the heel-snapping serpent in order that we might worship Jesus freely. That's what the Exodus is all about, and that's what Easter makes possible. So you can choose this morning. You can choose Pharaoh, or you can choose God. You can choose slavery, or you can choose liberation. You can choose wandering in the desert aimlessly. Life, hope, and purpose in relationship with God, it's open to everyone here. It's open to you if you don't know Jesus this morning. It's open to you if you do know Jesus, and the serpent has you by the heel. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The enemy who threatens us and deceives us 
and strikes at the heel has been smashed. All of history from Genesis to Revelation points to a king who will reign, a king who would crush the serpent's head and set all to rights, the king who snatched life from the jaws of death by, his, by the powers of his own death-defying death. And we tell the story. We tell it to each other, generation after generation. The God of the Exodus, the great I Am, who has always been there for us, who has always heard our cry and remembered his promises, he will always be there for us. He draws us out to draw us in. One day he'll return again for his people. And it won't just be Noah's land that is restored. It won't just be the land on the other side of the Red Sea that will become our inheritance. It won't just be deliverance from Pharaoh. But it will be the restoration and the reconciliation of everything and every place and every person who has ever said yes to Jesus. And his rule and reign and our face-to-face relationship with God will stretch as far as the eye can see. That's the hope we live with. When Moses and the Egyptians came through the Red Sea and looked down over the waters behind them where God's enemies went crashing to their death, they sung this song. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God. And I will exalt him. Christos Anesti. Christ is risen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that what we celebrate this morning is so much more than a a public holiday, a bank holiday. So much more than uh, what tomorrow will bring in terms of a day off work. Thank you that what we celebrate today, as those who said yes to you, is the pivot point on which all of history has hung, on which all of history has been decided. That we, your people, those who've said yes to you today, have been drawn out of slavery, have been drawn out of Pharaoh's slavery, have been drawn out of the sting of death, have been removed from the shame and the guilt of our sin and brought into a promised land in which we have relationship with the Father for now and for always. And nothing, nothing can change that. No event in history, nothing that comes in the future will ever change what you achieved on the cross, what we celebrate this morning, this Easter morning. King Jesus, be glorified. Amen. 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 Amen.